Hello, everyone. Welcome to the May edition of uh, our Construction Claims uh, webinar. This month, we will be talking about preparing for the loss. Uh, my name is Tashia Rasool. I'm a partner here at Lois Law Firm. Uh, I oversee the construction practice group here at Lois. Uh, my team handles only uh, construction workers' compensation claims, meaning uh, claims arising out of accidents occurring on a construction job site. Um, all of my attorneys here are familiar with the ins and outs of uh, the construction claims, uh, construction projects, and we work hand-in-hand uh, -hand and very closely with our GL uh, counterpart or general liability counterpart in providing a global defense to our clients. Um, for those of you joining me for the very first time, welcome. For those of you who have been joining me for a while, uh, thank you for your continued support and welcome again. Um, this is a live presentation. At the end, uh, you will be able to ask uh, questions. Just type them into the box and I will provide an answer if we run out of time. Um, I can uh, send you an email with an answer to your questions. So what are we gonna talk about today? Uh, we're going to talk about assembling the team before the loss. We're also going to talk about the initial response at the time of the loss, which is extremely important in these catastrophic uh, construction claims. And like I mentioned, there's a Q&A at the end. This is what the box is going to look like. Just type your questions in there. Also, as a reminder, I'm the author of the Construction Defense Handbook uh, published by our firm. If you do not have a copy, uh, let me know and I can send you a copy. You can do a hard copy or a PDF. Um, so you can send me an email to request that. All right, so let's talk about who should be on the team. The team that we're talking about is the wrap-up team or the OSIP team or the, the, the CSIP team. And why do I refer to it as the team? Well, first of all, it really is. Everyone's working together hands in hand. Um, second, second of all, I think it's very important for us to have designated uh, individuals and entities who will be working on these construction claims, and it's important to have them set up and assigned even before a loss. So the wrap-up is a general term that's used. Um, uh, th there are two kinds of wrap-ups. There are owner-controlled insurance program wrap-ups. Those are the OSIPs. Those are the majority of kinds that I see from the, uh, the, the construction claims uh, in New York City or in New York State in general. Um, so you'll hear me if I'm referring to an OSIP throughout this presentation, I'm really referring to wrap-ups in general, unless I'll specify if I'm talking about a CSIP, which is a contractor controlled insurance program. Also, the board, the judges, even their adversaries, they don't make a differentiation between the OSIPs and the CSIPs. Um, they just use the the term wrap up in general, so they're all the same thing. They're all the same thing, and if I'm making a distinction, I'll let you know. All right. So if it's an OSIP, it's owner or uh, it's it's owner controlled. So this, for example, would be the person who is going to um, do the project, right? It could be a public entity. It can be a private developer, for example. Uh, John Smith LLC and they're a development company, right? They would be the owner who's going to put together this team with the assistance of the broker, the insurance carrier and so forth that I'll talk about in a second. 
if it's a contractor controlled insurance program, this is a situation where the owner would hire a general contractor to put together the program saying, hey, you're going to be responsible, you're the GC, I want you to get the broker, the, the insurance company, get the policy, present it to me, I'll approve it, and that'll be our policy and our team for the project. All right, so the broker. The broker is the firm, and it's usually a couple of individuals from the firm who would be assigned to the project. They're the ones who, uh, on behalf of the owner or the general contractor, uh, look into getting the policy, finding the proper insurance carrier, the TPA, all of the vendors. Um, the broker sometimes do only that aspect of it, but I'm seeing more and more brokerage firms that are doing uh, a lot of like risk management or client management, wherein they're acting as a liaison between the insurance carrier and the client uh, in terms of actually making decisions on the claim. So they're in a more involved role. Uh, most clients tend to go with the brokers who are in the more involved role, uh, who do risk management as part of their brokerage services. And this is because they help to streamline communications amongst all of the parties of the OSIP team. So the insurance carrier, this is the, the entity that's going to uh, write the policy that um, the client is seeking. In most of these cases, if not all of them, there's always a deductible. It can be $500,000, it can be a million, $5 million. And beyond that deductible, we do need an insurance policy. So this is where the insurance carrier comes in. They're oftentimes referred to as the excess carrier. Um, but usually like the, the, the first, the first portion of the, the money uh, that's going to be funding the claim, which is the deductible, it's going to come directly from the client. And we've seen that the client's usually extremely involved uh, during that period of time. There's also the TPA, the third party administrator. Um, most insurance companies use a TPA to administer the claims. They only write the policy, they produce the policy, they collect the money and say, hey, TPA, I'm going to pay you. For you to administer these claims. Uh, that does not mean that the insurance carrier is not involved. They are oftentimes involved. We've seen that you know they're required to be copied and all of decision making. They also help to make decisions in the claims. Very importantly, the safety team. You should have a safety team on your, your OSIP, your wrap-up program. Uh, the reason is because of the, um, the extent of the uh, the injuries that could occur if an accident um, occurs on the job site, a lot of them, if not most of them, um, involve a fall from a scaffold or some kind of a height, since we're talking about New York City, where a lot of high-rise buildings being built, um, and also because of the potential exposure that these construction accidents could result in. It's very important to have a safety team, and this is going to comprise of um, it might be an outside vendor that's on the on the, the job site, or it can be some um, individuals from within, uh, let's say, the general contractor or um, you know the, the owner who are on site, and you're going to have certain reporting services. For example, uh, who to report an accident to? What does that person do when the accident is reported to? Do they uh, call the ambulance? Do they write it up? Do they send them to the medic? Um, 
This team is also in, uh, in charge of ensuring that all of the safety protocols are being uh, followed on the job site. It's very important to um, ensure not only that we have the team, but that everyone on the job site knows who the team is and what their purpose is. Um, the on-site nurse or medic. I generally see an on-site medic, only in a few cases I've actually seen that there's a, a nurse on there. It's usually an entire team. Um, and it's set up like a, a mini ambulance kind of service where they have all of the emergency equipment. Um, there's a nursing staff. And, you know, if there's any accident, they would be the, 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 the first point of like taking care of the, the claimant when an accident occurs. They would be the ones to call the ambulance and so forth. And very important, they would have all of those initial records of the accident and injury that we need that could help us to... Uh, contest the extent of an injury or even that an accident happened because we've had situations where a worker goes to the on-site medic and said, hey, I'm not feeling well, my back's hurting, and that's all that's written up. And then two months later, they filed a claim stating that they actually fell and hurt themselves, whereas they never reported this to the on-site medic. So the very first um, set of medicals that we can get would be from the on-site medic or the on-site nurse. And that's why it's important to have this um, resource on the job site and as part of the team. Okay, and then there's investigation. So it's very, very important to have um, an outside vendor do your investigation in these construction claims, again, because of the potential exposure. I would not recommend having just some random person going out there and taking statements. The investigators that we've worked with and seen that our clients work with are experienced um, in conducting construction uh, job site investigations. They know the information to um, obtain. They also work closely with the general liability attorneys and also with us, the workers' compensation defense attorneys. Um, they know the kinds of questions to ask. They know the kind of information to report to us. And they generally have a very... Um, a very good sense of where um, of, of of when there's a, like some kind of like uh, fishiness going on in the job site, they would be able to accurately report that to us. So it's very important to have an investigation team or an investigation vendor as part of your team. So these are the main components of who should be on your team for a wrap-up project. I feel like if any of these are missing. Um, well, of course, the, the broker and insurance carrier, um, the TPA wouldn't be missing, but I feel like if the safety team or the on-site medic or the investigation team is missing, if an accident were to occur and we did not already know who to um, turn to to get information about what happened or what is alleged to have happened, um, by the time we find the proper investigator or find someone to like pull up the medical of what was reported, uh, to some random person on the job site, it's too late. So it's important to have these ahead of time, ready to go as soon as the accident occurs. We just know a phone number to dial and we get the information. All right, some other vendors that we should be looking at to have on our panel, the, the, the team, would be um, the IME vendors. A lot of times in denied cases, we wanna have a good IME from the very beginning to examine the claimant, take a good statement from the claimant and provide an opinion and cause a relationship because 
Um, we've seen cases that were legit accidents to start as a, a finger injury and then it turns into like an elbow and a shoulder and somehow there's a consequential, uh, the other shoulder is hurt in the back and it, it just becomes like an entire body claim. So it's good to have a really good strong IME from the very beginning to help us contest a causal relationship. And also important is a Medicare secondary payer compliance vendor. Um, a lot of these cases that we see are older claimants who are close to retirement and they use their workers' compensation claims in retirement, they start receiving social security benefits or they're receiving Medicare. Then to um, close out the claims via settlements, we'll need to have a, a vendor do the MSA. So it's always good to have one of these on board in the event that we need we need to uh, resolve the case via a settlement. Your workers' compensation defense counsel. Now, I say this to all uh, prospective clients. I think you should have defense counsel assigned from the very beginning, from the moment you're putting the team together. And we're usually part of the discussions. The clients that I work with usually have um, a couple of firms, at least two firms um, assigned to the panel, and they usually have a sense of what kind of cases that are going to go to each individual firm. Um, our, uh, the cases that we generally uh, receive are the um, very um, severe high exposure cases. We generally don't get the, the, the pinky finger cases, right? We get the, the back and the neck and the traumatic brain injury cases, which are the ones that really drive up the, the cost of the, um, or the potential exposure of the claim. So those are the ones that we usually see from our clients, but you should definitely have a couple on your list and know what you're gonna send to where. Um, your defense counsel can also help with the initial investigation. Um, we have clients and we encourage our clients to call us from the moment that um, you're aware of a very catastrophic accident. They usually also call the General Liability Council, but if we know we're going to deny the claim uh, for whatever reason, it's very important that we're speaking with investigators from the very beginning because we can collaborate um, and talk about the information that we would need to defend the, the case. Because as you know, the workers' compensation claims, they go by so quickly. We can go from accident to trial in 45 days if medicals are submitted right away. And last but certainly not least, your general liability defense counsel. Um, they're the ones who are going to be handling what is commonly referred to as the third party claim. So the owner might be sued or some other contractor might be sued. Um, they're the ones that are going to defend it. So it's very important in um, in, in having your general liability defense counsel assigned ahead of time because they're the ones who usually go out with the investigators the moment the accidents happen because they're already teeing up the defense of their claim. And then as they're preparing to go out, we usually get called and we, we can either go out with them or provide them guidance as to what we need for the workers' compensation claim. Definitely have your attorneys ahead of time and know what kind of cases you're gonna be sending to them depending on the type of accident or the potential exposure. All right, so getting the team together. Now, I'll tell you, it's, I would not recommend just putting together a list and emailing it out to everyone, it just doesn't work. 
Um, I know times are different today in 2021. Uh, we're hardly doing things in person anymore. Most of it's virtual. Um, but even if it has to be a virtual meeting, it should be a meeting with everyone present and the role of each and every person or entity um, explained to each other. There should be a distribution of um, a, a contact list that everyone could have so they know who to call. Um, the meeting should set up before the project even starts. And I think there should be subsequent meetings even as the project starts because there's so many things that can change after the project actually starts. Sometimes we see that we need more vendors or sometimes um, we see that the, the, the project is going either faster or slower than expected and so forth. So any uh, you might need some subsequent meetings also. Every, um, every team member or team entity should know the phases of the project and what's covered and not covered. This is important because things like demolition is generally not covered in a wrap-up. So if demolition is happening in the first six months of the project and you're starting to see workers' compensation claims, that's a red flag and we should be looking to see whether uh, the employer is enrolled and there's actually coverage for demolition on the project. That's just one example. Uh, the physical aspects of the job site changes, right? It's, it's a really a living organism. An accident occurs this morning, by this afternoon, if your investigator gets out there a little too late, uh, all of the equipment might be removed. You know, the scaffolding might be, be like starting to like dismantle. The ladder might not be there anymore. And because of this, we need to let all of our team members know what to expect, right? What's the beginning what's the end, uh, the, the, the projected end date of the phase? Is there a possibility that it, it could and sooner. What's going to happen if it ends sooner? These are all things we need to brainstorm and talk about as the team, as a team together. And like I said, you might need subsequent um, meetings to address any changes that are occurring. Contractors. Uh, everyone should know who the contractors are. The general contractors, the subcontractors, are they enrolled, not enrolled, what kind of work are they doing there? Certain kind of work, um, like asbestos removal, is generally not covered on a wrap-up. I think this is something that everyone should know. Again, similar to like certain phases are not covered on a wrap-up. Unions, um, the, jo the, the jobs that take place in New York City, they're usually um, they, they're usually union workers on the project. So we should be familiar about uh, which union is being um, providing their workers, uh, any kind of ish, prior issues we've had with certain unions that could come up again or certain kinds of workers, everyone should know that information. Lingo and unique aspects of the job. So I've had clients who use all kinds of like phrases and terminologies uh, to refer to their setup. Uh, that's something that um, everyone should be familiar with. Also, if you have any vendors who are doing like construction claims for the very first time, which I would probably recommend against, um, they need to be familiar with uh, certain construction terms in order to know what to do when something happens, um, when an accident happens. And everyone should go over anticipated hazards and obstacles. Um, a lot of things that we see are like buildings being um, 
constructed on a, a busy avenue or street and we've seen accidents arise from off the job site at the intersection you know so, uh, like a claimant gets hit by a vehicle or maybe it's happening in a flood zone and um you know the the area is flooded and um there's like holes or like some other things or like like a trip and fall would be involved um anything that we would anticipate that would happen on the project everyone should know uh, what these are and be prepared to address them, especially when the claimant files a claim and says that it happens at a particular location, for example, at the intersection of um, X Street and Y Avenue, we should know that, all right, that's right by our job site, but it's not covered because it's not on the actual project. And again, the safety team and medic should be present at the meetings. Um, they should be stating uh, what their expertise is, the kind of service they offer, so that everyone knows uh, what to expect um, when an accident occurs and the kind of information we should be requesting from them. We should always public the team contacts and the OSIP or CSIP or the wrap-up manual. This is the document that usually says the purpose of the project, what exactly is being built, what's covered, what's not covered, and usually in the very back there's a contact sheet with the list of the names and the contact information the telephone number and email address of everyone in your team so you know if your investigator needs to get in touch with me they would be able to uh, look in the back and see that i'm defense counsel my contact is there and they can contact me directly also there should be um, some sort of a discussion regarding open communication a lot of times the brokers like to be the liaison between or amongst all of the communication, approving the communication, but I've worked with clients in certain situations where if there's an emergency, you don't need to go through that channel. You can contact your, the defense attorney directly or contact the insurance carrier investigation, uh, investigation company directly. So, you know, the nature of the communication should be um, something that's discussed at the meeting when you first meet to introduce all of your team members to each other. Setting up a timeline for action to be taken. Uh, this is extremely important, especially in the first, I'd say, 24 hours of a claim or of an accident. As soon as we know of an accident, the investigation team should be contacted, your attorney should be contacted, and the investigation should begin. Um, but you know, sometimes that happens and then nothing else happens for a couple of days. I'd recommend having a set timeline for everything. So investigation within 24 hours, maybe a subsequent investigation within uh, 72 hours, contacting your attorneys within the first 12 hours of it happening, uh, reporting it to the insurance carrier within the first uh, 24 hours, setting up a meeting to discuss the, the, the accident should happen within, I'd say, the first 48 hours. Um, outline the loss reporting rules. Uh, this goes in hand in hand with the timeline that you should be setting up. But um, more importantly, everyone should know uh, how to report the loss, who to report it to, and when exactly to report it. This is important because we don't want to be sitting on a case for too long, whereas it should have been reported to uh, 
the, the insurance carrier and to the board um, because you, re you run the risk of uh, getting a penalty or um, you know, not being able to file a denial in time because a decision wasn't made in time. So it absolutely should be uh, discussed ahead of time and there should be a set time frame for reporting the loss to all of the proper entities, including the board. Run a drill. I know this seems like a lot of work. Um, some clients opt to not do it, but I've seen clients who do it. And the drill can be anything from um, at the time of the actual team meeting where we're just, everyone's role playing, there's a fact pattern, and then everyone just does what they're supposed to do. And if the process doesn't go smoothly, it's usually revisited, meaning that we don't, we don't have a good system in place. Um, we've also seen like after that initial meeting, there's subsequent meetings where it's set up just to run the drill. Um, everyone's given the fact pattern ahead of time and um, at the meeting, all of the different vendors are contacted and they respond and, you know, we see how it actually works with each other. And it's a good exercise because we know how it's going to be realistically when that first catastrophic claim comes in, right? So at least we want to be prepared. It's not always perfect, but it, it's, it, it gives us a good idea of how it's going to go. Um, when the accident actually occurs. And I can guarantee you, you'll be surprised to know how often, how, how often that there is a perfect plan on paper and then when it's time to execute it, it's, it's not easily or quickly executed. So it's good to run that drill. All right, the, at the time of the loss, so we have this great program in place, we have a wrap up, we have um, the insurance carrot, TPA, all of our fabulous vendors. What do we do when there's a loss? Now, we're going to think back to that drill that we just ran, right? And the timeline that we have. The initial response is key. The initial response, this would be the investigation. Calling your vendor, calling your attorneys, getting them out to the job site. All of this should be done within the first 12 hours, maybe the first six hours if possible immediately if possible, right? I know it takes a little bit of time sometimes uh, with the reporting, but if the accident happens in the morning, we should have an investigator out there by the afternoon. It should be an on-site investigation. The investigator should be there in person talking to all of the uh, potential witnesses. If the claimant is still there, the investigator should be talking to the claimant also, the supervisor, anyone who may have seen the accident. Now in workers' compensation, I'll point this out. A lot of times we produce witnesses who are not actually eyewitnesses, right? It's because a lot of these accidents supposedly happen without an actual eyewitness, right? No one saw it, but it happened. But the witness that we're looking for is perhaps a supervisor or a coworker who may have seen the claimant um, just like a minute before the accident happened or after the alleged accident happened, who can give us some insight as to, uh, you know, did he seem injured? Did he complain about something when he came into work that morning? What exactly were the circumstances surrounding the accident? Um, so this is why it's important for the, uh, the investigator to go out right away and talk to as many people as they possibly can. And I can't stress it enough, get your attorney involved and come up with an initial defense plan 
immediately. Sometimes your attorneys have experience on the same job sites. Um, uh, they're familiar with the same kind of construction that's been going on or the same kind of case. They can give you information about the potential venue them of the case and the judge that's going to hear the case so we know how to tee up our defense from the very beginning all right the importance of in initial investigation so I, I have to talk about this a little in detail rather than just say you know we should get the investigation uh going from the the very moment that the accident occurred now the job site it's it's a change in organism right um, a lot of the cases we see, for example, the claimant fell from a ladder. A ladder is a moving object, right? Um, just move by itself, but it, it's it's moved from one location to the next, and as soon as it's it's finished being used, um, it, it can go to like a different floor or a completely different area on the project. Um, machinery, if the claimant is alleging that he was hurt using a certain machinery, those also move all the time, especially um, you know, like the bulldozers, the rollers, like the actual vehicle kind of machinery. So it's very important to get out there right away. I really can't stress how, like how important it is to get out there right away because I've seen situations where investigators go out there like 12 hours later and the job site's completely different than what, you know, the witnesses are claiming that it was or the claimant is claiming that it was when the accident occurred. Workers and trades leave. Um, a claimant might be there just to do work for a day or a week, and uh, the with same same thing for his his coworkers, right? The other laborers on the job site. So if we wait a couple of days to get the investigation done, the, the the guys who were there on the the day of the accident, they might not be there anymore. We don't even know who they were, uh, wh who was working with the claimant. So it'll be hard to get our witnesses if we wait. Um, oh, I just talked about the equipment and the tools being moved all the time. And last but certainly not least, uh, surveillance. Surveillance from the job site or a neighboring building um, are usually taped over, sometimes weekly, sometimes monthly. We should absolutely never wait a month to do an investigation. Um, actually, a rule of thumb should be for every a claim that arises on a construction job site, there should be some kind of an investigation being done within the first 24 hours. Um, I've seen clients make the mistake of, hey, it's only a pinky finger injury, so we're not gonna do an investigation. And then a month later, he's claiming injuries to every body part, and he actually fell from a scaffolding, and it wasn't a, a three-foot ladder or something like that. And you know, the claims are blown out of proportion, and we don't have an investigation that was done close in time to the accident. I know it's costly, but it could be a cost savings in the long run. So it's something we should do from the very beginning in all of our claims um, and get those surveillance. A lot, of, a lot of the job sites do not have their own surveillance, but hey, in New York City, every building has surveillance, right? So we've seen surveillance from um, like surrounding buildings uh, that capture the, the, the claimant or the area where the claimant alleged that he was um, injured and we've been able to use that in defending the claim all right so that's my overview of putting the the team together for a wrap-up program also known as an OSIP or a CSEP um, in in some you must have I require that you must have 
uh, all of your team members, all of your vendors in place and assigned before the loss happens and run that drill. And so we know what to do when the loss happens. Don't forget to call your workers' comp defense attorney because the defense happens from the very first day of the accident, not the first day that we have a court hearing or a notice from the board. All right. So um, that's it for today. If you have any questions and you haven't yet typed them into the box, go ahead and do so. I'll see you here again next month where we're going to talk about legal issues and coordinating defense. These are really interesting. Um, this is, I, I hope it's not going to be boring to you because I'll be talking like a lot of like legal stuff, but it's things that you should know about what's happening on the workers' compensation side and um, the general liability side. So I'll take a look and see if we have any questions now. And if not, I will see you next month. Type your questions in this box if you haven't already. All right, I guess my presentation was that good. There's no questions. If you think of anything later, send me an email um, and I will get back to you. Feel free to give me a call also. I mean, we can chat about anything that's uh, bothering you about these uh, pesky construction cases. Um, I can provide some guidance and how to uh, set up your team and defend them. All right, so I'll see you all next month and we'll talk about best practices in defending um, and collaborating uh, defenses between workers' compensation and general liability. Thank you.